Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. John chapter 13, I'll read the first five verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, To betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Imagine with me for a moment that we have a friend, a very good, faithful friend that we have known for some time, and a friend who has always been willing to help us, whatever our need, and always ready to do us good. But then the time comes when this good friend of ours must go away from us and move to a distant and very far away place, a place that is very much different from where we have known him, and he must remain there for a long period of time, and we will not see him while he is there. We wonder what would become of our friend, and what will happen to our friendship, and will his time in this very distant and different place change his heart of affection for us, Will his heart be cooled, his friendship lessened because of the distance and the time? This is the question we consider this morning, but not in regard to an earthly friend, but in regard to our great heavenly friend, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. We know all that Christ has done for our salvation, that in his love and mercy he came down from heaven into this world in an incarnation, and he became a man. He took our humanity to himself. He was that one unique person, God and man, in one person forever, and he lived among us a perfect, pure, and holy life of obedience to his heavenly Father. Not a single sin could ever be found in Jesus. In him there was no sin There was only righteousness to be found in Jesus. But then he suffered that most agonizing death, even the death of a cross, which was an atonement, a sacrifice to God in heaven to pay the penalty for our sins. And it was all done out of his love for us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And Paul says, Christ loved me and delivered himself up for me. Galatians 2 and verse 20, it was all part of God's plan of salvation to save us who were guilty 
and defiled by our sin that we might have eternal life. Christ became the Savior of sinners by his life and death upon the cross. If any man looks inside of his own heart, what does he find there? He finds only sin and wretchedness. If any man looks at his own life and his own conduct, what does he find? He finds inconsistencies and so many failures. But if a man looks outward to Jesus, there he finds righteousness, and there alone he finds the blood that can cleanse him from all his sins. Christ is the Savior of sinners by his life and death upon the cross. After his death, he was raised from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended back into heaven. He is now seated this morning at the right hand of God in the glory of heaven. And there he has been in that world above for 2,000, almost 2,000 years. And the question we consider this morning is, what is the heart of Christ now toward us who believe now that he has ascended back into heaven? What are the affections of his heart? What, are, what is his love toward us now that he is seated in glory from which he came? A most important question for us to consider because he is in heaven and we are upon the earth. And no two worlds could ever be more different from one another, more contrary to one another than heaven and earth. Heaven is a place of purity and holiness. Earth is a place of sin and evil. In heaven there is glory, on earth there is curse. In heaven there is joy and peace, on earth there is hatred and sorrow and so much misery. Two, two worlds could never be more different from one another than heaven above and the earth in which we live we see the love of Christ in his life as he dwelt among us on earth, especially in his death upon the cross. But now he has gone away. And he has been gone for a very long time. And he is infinitely exalted above us on his throne of glory in that world that is so superior to ours, where life is so pleasant and wonderful him what is his heart toward us now as we must live in this world of evil and we feel the power of sin so much around us and within us and even if we pursue holiness as we should even the best of saints stumble in so many ways and we are so short of what we ought to be. We fail, we struggle, we sin and grieve over ourselves, we fall. Our souls are so often troubled in this world, and it seems to us from our perspective that Jesus is so far removed from us, from our experience, so highly, so highly exalted in that world above. In his own words, he has gone to a far country to receive a kingdom to himself. And so we wonder, what is his heart of love toward us now? Has it changed in any way? And what are his affections 
now that he has ascended back into heaven. This is our subject this morning. What is the heart of Christ toward us who have come to him in faith? And I take up this subject by a study in a book entitled The Heart of Christ, written by a famous Puritan. His name is Thomas Goodwin. And he wrote his book in 1651. And I give you the entire title of the book. It is called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Or the subtitle is A Treatise, a treatise Demonstrating the gracious disposition of Christ in his human nature now in glory unto his members under all sorts of infirmities and miseries, either of sin or misery. So I take my line of arguments in everything that I say here. It is not new with me, but it is the arguments of Goodwin, hopefully, Best I can in my own words. I simply begin with a quote from Thomas Goodwin. He says this in regard to the purpose of his book. He says that it it is to show the heart of Christ in respect of pity and compassion remains the same it was on earth that he intercedes there in heaven with the same heart he did here below. That he is as meek, as gentle, as easy to be entreated and as tender in his affections toward us now in heaven as he was on earth. A very important subject for us to consider as Christians because it ought to be our desire to grow in fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Savior, to draw near to him as we should. And if we would do so, we must have confidence in him and his continued love and affection for us on earth. So we begin here in this chapter, in John chapter 13. Two things we'll see here this morning. First, the heart of Christ in glory, in glory revealed to us. This is what John is showing us here. He is giving us in this chapter a sight into the heart of Jesus In this upper room discourse, we call it the Last Supper. Sometimes he is with his disciples here in John 13 through 17. And he begins to discuss with them. This is the last night that he will be with them. And he speaks to them in plain language concerning his coming departure. We see this in John 13 verse 31. And John tells us here verse 31, when therefore... He had gone out, that is, Judas had left the supper. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus here speaks of his death, resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven, where he was about to be glorified. He would glorify the Father in his death upon the cross, 
And then the Father would glorify him in the resurrection and the exaltation back into heaven. And this is what was filling the mind of Jesus on this evening. His coming glory and return back to his heavenly Father. And this is why John speaks to us back in verse 1 of this chapter in this way as he begins to speak of this last night with the disciples. Now in verse 1, John is not simply giving us an introduction to the discourse. But what John is doing in verse 1 is he is setting for us the frame by which we may look through the window and see into the heart of Jesus in everything that he says in this discourse. We see in verse 1, he writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, his hour of suffering, his hour of the cross that he had come into the world to accomplish, the hour that he had known from the beginning, it had now come upon him. Jesus knew that this hour had now come. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and then when his hour was finished, his sufferings were over, then what would be the outcome and the result of his sufferings that he should depart out of this world to the Father and he would return to the glory of heaven with his Father, the glory that he had known from the beginning, from eternity before his incarnation. He would soon depart out of this world to the Father. Now John has already spoken of this glory Back in the previous chapter, just a few verses before, back in chapter 12 and verse 41. In verse 40, John quotes from the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And then he writes in verse 41, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. John here refers to Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 where Isaiah saw the glory of Christ on his throne in heaven, that he was high and lifted up, and the seraphim about his throne sang of his glory. That was the glory that Jesus knew before he came into the world, and that was the glory to which he was soon to return after his hour of the cross. So back in chapter 13 and verse 1, there would first be the hour of, of the cross. His hour had come. He speaks of it as an hour. Not literally, but to tell us that it was a short period of suffering that he would endure, but then after that hour of suffering, he would depart out of this world back into heaven to be with his heavenly Father. And Jesus knew these things had come upon him. In other words, John is telling us his mind was filled with the certainty of them. He was strong in his consciousness because of the many promises of his heavenly Father to him in the Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 110, where the Father would say to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Daniel chapter 7, to him shall be given glory, dominion, and a kingdom. 
Isaiah chapter 53, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He shall see it and be satisfied. So Jesus knew that this was what lied just before him by the promises of his father to him about to be fulfilled. He would return, depart out of this world to his father. We see the same thing. In verse 3, where John tells us Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So this is what lie before him here. As soon as he would return back into heaven, a glorious throne would be given to him and power, dominion, and authority over all things in heaven and on earth. And this is what lie behind the mind of Christ in all that he is about to say throughout this supper. What John is doing in these verses is John is setting the window by which we should see everything that takes place now throughout this Last Supper. And so knowing the glory that was soon that he was soon to enter into. What was the heart of Jesus fixed upon in this upper room? John tells us at the end of verse 1, was it the honor and glory that was due to him as he would return to the worship of the seraphim in heaven? 33 years He had lived upon earth, despised and forsaken of men. But now he was to return soon to the worship and honor of heaven. Was his soul set upon that? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But now to return to the glory and happiness that he had known from eternity in heaven? Was it the anticipation of this that filled his soul? Was it the fullness of the Father's delight and love for him? No. Knowing full well the glory that was set before him, His heart was now set upon one thing, and it was love for his disciples. That's what John is telling us here, knowing that he should depart out of this world to the glory of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. John gives us here a preview of what the heart of Jesus will continue to be toward his disciples even after he returns into heaven and sits upon his glorious throne. His heart will be the same there as it was on earth. His anticipation of glory, his entrance into it would not in any way diminish his love and his affection for his disciples here below. He will be there 
with the Father in that world of glory, and we will be here in this world of sin and so much struggle. But his heart will always be the same toward us, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. John tells us he loved his own, which speaks of those who belong to him as his own possession. It speaks of the closest and the most intimate, the dearest relation to him. He loved his own. They were his own because the Father had given them to him from eternity, and they were his own because he would purchase them by his own blood upon the cross. He loved those who were his own, who would come to believe in him. But John tells us he loved his own who were in the world. Which in John's gospel means in this world of sin and so much darkness. In this world that is under the power of the evil one. In a world that is so hostile toward God and his people. In a world, in this world in which we would face so many trials, temptations and dangers. And we would be exposed to so much sin and defilement of the world. So many troubles, miseries, vexations would come upon us. We would be here on earth. And he would be there in heaven. But the great concern of his soul in the glory of heaven would be that we would know his eternal and unchanging love and compassion having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When John tells us here in verse 1 that he would depart out of this world to the Father, we might think he would say, having loved those who were in heaven already, he anticipated to return and have love for them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the saints of the Old Testament, they were already there in glory. But it was not the saints in heaven that his heart is set upon, because they are in no danger there. His love is set upon his saints who are still in the world. Because we are the ones who are exposed to so much danger, trouble, and temptations here. And he must continually care and protect us and bring us safely to that world above. Having loved his own who were still in the world. And then he says he loved them to the end. To the end speaks of the constancy, the unchanging nature of his love. It also speaks of his love to the uttermost, the degree to the highest possible extent, a love of steadfastness, a love of perfection to the end of time and into eternity. He is upon his throne in heaven and he is love for his disciples who are in the world would not diminish forever. The far country into which Jesus has gone 
the glory that he now knows there. And all of our remaining sin and our weaknesses and our failures, none of these things will ever diminish the love of Christ for his own. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loves them from his throne of glory. And that's what John is giving us a picture into here. When he would go out of the world to the Father. The first part of verse 1 tells us where he will soon go. He will depart out of the world to the Father. The second, the last part of the verse tells us what he will do when he gets there. He will still continue to love his own who are in the world and he will love them to the end. There is a constancy, a consistency between these things. The first leads into the second. Knowing the glory that awaits him, John tells us of the love that he will have, continue to have for us as he arrives there his unchanging affection for every one of his disciples. Having loved his own who were in the world, he will love them to the end. A love of commitment. A love of patience. A love of infinite kindness and mercy and pity for us. Verse 1 here in this chapter marks an interesting transition in John's gospel because if you're familiar with John's gospel, you'll know what I speak of. In the previous 12 chapters, John has spoken of life and light very often. He has mentioned life 50 times. He has spoken of light 32 times in the previous 12 chapters, but he has only spoken of love six times. But now in chapters 13 through 17, this great change takes place where he speaks of life only six times and of light not at all. But he speaks of love now 31 times in these chapters. John chapter 14 and verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. John 15 and verse 9, just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you, abide in my love. And greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so the love of Christ is now central. And the love of Christ now takes prominence as we come into this upper room discourse as Jesus looks forward to his glory that is to come and the love that he will continue to have for his disciples. And so we see here in the first place the love of Christ for us in glory the heart of Christ and his love for us as he is in glory. We come in the second place this morning to a demonstration of Christ's love in glory. A demonstration. This is what we see now in the washing of the feet that takes place in the following verses. We read in verse 2, Knowing 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So Jesus here now in the upper room, his mind is filled with the thoughts of where he has come from. He has come down from heaven from the Father and he knows where he is going. He is returning back to God the Father in heaven and he has thoughts of that glory, sovereignty, power that will belong to him. Very soon, very soon, he will be in the place of unapproachable light and joy back on his throne in heaven. But what did these thoughts of his coming glory and power cause him to do? The answer is found in verse 4 and 5. Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. A most astonishing thing Jesus now begins to do. Knowing the sovereignty that has been given to him as king in heaven and earth, the glory that awaits him with the Father to what he is about to return, things that would normally cause one to think he should be the one to be served. But not with Jesus. Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his garments, took a towel, poured water into the basin and began to go about the table washing the dirty feet of his disciples. Washing feet in this way was common in those days. Usually it was performed by a slave when one entered the house of another. The people would walk in their sandals with bare feet, and their feet would become dirty as they walked through the streets. And then upon entering a house, it was proper etiquette for a slave of the host to wash the feet of the guests. But on this occasion, there was no host in the upper room. And there was no slave there to wash their feet. Luke tells us in his gospel that before the disciples gathered, just before they gathered on this evening they argue with one another once again which of them was the greatest. And some have thought that after that argument they were annoyed at one another because each one of them tried to one-up the other. And so as they reclined at the table, there was no one, there was none of the disciples who were willing to wash the feet of any others except for Jesus. He was the only one humble enough willing to wash the dirty feet of the disciples. And why did he stoop to this most menial task of washing his disciples' feet? To show them in a living demonstration his love for them and what he would continually do for them if he could, even when he returned into heaven to his glory. 
His mind was set on returning to the glory with his father. And when he was there in heaven, and his disciples are still on earth, he would not be able to wash their feet. But this is what he would desire to do. And this is what he would be willing to continue to do, even for us as his disciples. By the great love with which he loves us even now in heaven. And that's what he shows his disciples here in these verses. He had come from the Father. He was returning to the Father. All things had been given into his hands. And as he was about to enter the glory, he gives us a preview, a sight of what his heart would continue to be. He rises from the table and he washes the disciples' feet. We can see this if we turn to Another passage in the Gospel of Luke for a moment in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 35 through 37. And Jesus said in verse 35, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight. And be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Jesus gives this short parable as an exhortation to be ready for his second coming. In verse 36, he is the master who has gone to the wedding feast. We are the servants on earth who must wait eagerly and be ready for his return so that when he returns, we are ready immediately to open the door when he knocks. In verse 37, he makes a promise that he will bless his servants who are so alert when he comes. He will be so pleased with them. He will reverse the normal servant-master relationship. And rather than servants serving their master, the master will now serve the servants. And he will gird himself and he will have them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them just as he did in John chapter 13. Now we will not take, we would not take this literally as if Jesus does this in heaven now or as if he will do this literally when he returns on the last day. But he speaks here figuratively to show the great love that overflows from his heart and his desire to do good to his disciples and the exceeding joy and happiness that we will have when we are welcomed by him into his presence. 
What Jesus says he will do in verse 37 is what he did in John chapter 13. He went about the table and he began to wash the disciples' feet and he showed his heart that he would have for them as he ascended back into heaven. We turn back to John chapter 13. Back in John chapter 13, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. It was an, a humble act of service to one another, and he does set an example for us, for one another. This is what he tells us in verse 15. He says, For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. But his washing of their feet was much more than an example of humble service. It was a parable in action of his death upon the cross by which he would wash away their sins. Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, and Peter objected in verses 6 and 7. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not now, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Jesus was looking forward to his death upon the cross by which he would wash away the sins of his people by his blood. The outward meaning of washing their feet was obvious. Peter knew the outward meaning. But the real meaning of it, he did not yet realize he would understand it afterward, that Jesus washing their feet was a symbol of his washing away of their sin by his blood. We read in verse 8, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. If we are not washed by the blood of Jesus from our sins, then we have no part with Jesus. We have no part of his salvation. So the real meaning of this washing of their feet was the washing away of their sins by his blood upon the cross. The one who humbled himself to go about the table and wash the dirty feet of his disciples was about to humble himself in an infinitely greater way by suffering in the death of the cross. He would not just lay aside his garments there. He would be stripped of all of his clothing. He would not wash their feet. He would wash their guilty souls. He would not wash away dirt. He would wash away sin. He would not wash with water. He would wash with his own precious blood. And this is the meaning of his washing of their feet here. That as his mind was set on the glory that he would soon return to. This was to show them what he would be continually willing to do and would do for them in heaven by his great love. That he would be continually 
washing away their sin by his blood and his intercession. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them now to the end and will continually cleanse them of all their sin. What Jesus did here on this occasion was a living demonstration of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He was showing them the great truths of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 and following, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, to take away our sin. So Jesus symbolizes the washing of his disciples' feet. And this is what he now does in heaven. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. To cleanse is the act of a servant. It is what servants do. And in regard to the cleansing of our sin, Jesus must become our servant in this way. Because we are so filthy, defiled, and in ourselves, helpless to cleanse ourselves from a single sin. We must have Jesus, our servant, come and wash us. From all our sin. And here, by the washing of his disciples' feet, he shows us as he contemplates the glory that is to come how willing he is to cleanse us from all our sin. Oh, this is far above what we could ever have expected exceeding abundantly beyond what we could even ask or think, that the Lord would serve his servants in this way, that the Lord of glory even in heaven now will continue to be our servant in the cleansing away of our sins. It must be so. It must be so, or we have no hope. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life a ransom. For many. And John tells us here that this now continues even as he sits upon his throne in heaven. Having been knowing that all things are given into his hands, 
that he has come forth from God and he was going back to God, he shows us by the washing of the feet his willingness to continue to cleanse us and serve us in this way on his throne in heaven. So we close our time this morning with a couple of brief applications. The first is that this love and cleansing of Christ in glory is for all who believe in Jesus even today. This is what the passage is all about, the love and the cleansing of Christ in glory. This is what John shows us and proves to us here, and it will continue to the end of time. Do we have doubts over these things? Do we think that our sins are too many too evil, too dark to be cleansed by him? Do we have doubts that when he cleanses us from our sins, that he actually is effectual in the cleansing away of all of our sins so that we appear white and pure in the sight of our Heavenly Father? Do we actually think of ourselves in that way or have we allowed the accusations of the devil to tell us that we cannot actually be cleansed from all of our sins by his blood. Perhaps we say to ourselves, we have disappointed the Lord too many times and we have grieved him on too many occasions. There must be some diminishing of his love for us, some lessening of his willingness to cleanse us from all of our sins. But these things cannot possibly be true because John shows us here the truth of Jesus and who he is even in heaven. As we still remain in the world, he will love us to the end. Was Jesus not disappointed? many times grieved over his own disciples in the gospel records? Did he not have to say to them at times, have I been so long with you and you still do not know me? Did he not have to say to them, do you have a hardened heart? Did they not stumble many times? But did that diminish his love for them here? Was he any less willing to wash their dirty feet, and then to go to the cross and cleanse away the filth of their souls by his blood. Not at all. And the same remains for us today. We have a great high priest who is always one who loves us, cares for us, and is ready to wash us from all of our sins whenever we come by faith to him. And so it will be to the end of time. The second thing we say as we close our time this morning is that we are always in need of this cleansing. This is what we see in verses 9 and 10. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, referring to Judas Iscariot. So here we see in verse 9 that Peter went from one extreme to another, 
And now he wanted his entire body to be cleansed. But Jesus had to correct him and say that he who has bathed, he has washed his entire body by which he meant he is justified. And in justification, he was first cleansed and forgiven of all of his sins so that he is now completely clean and he does not need to be justified all over again. But what we do need is to have our feet continually cleansed as we daily walk in the defilements that come upon us in this present world. And we need to be daily washed from all of our sins and we never grow beyond it. As long as we are in this world, we must go to him to be cleansed as he is so full of love and kindness to us. And so we see the love and the willingness of Jesus to continually cleanse us from all of our sins in heaven. We ask the question in the beginning, he has gone into a far country, has his heart changed? No, it has not changed. And he is still the same there in glory as he was upon earth. His love is undiminished and it still remains the same and his willingness to wash us and cleanse us, will always be the same. What a blessed Savior we have and how much we need him. And if you are not a Christian this morning, then you may have your sins washed away as well. And he is willing to receive sinners, even for the first time, with all the defilement of their sins. With all their uncleanness, he receives sinners who come to him and rest upon him and call upon him. And the promise is that if you call upon the name of the Lord, then you will not be disappointed. And he will show you his mercy and his kindness towards sinners. Still the friend of sinners. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, we thank you for our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That his love remains the same. That his willingness to receive us is constant and forever. We thank you that we may always come to him with all of our needs, with all of our sins, with all of our guilt, and be washed afresh every day. Thank you for your great patience toward us. Thank you for the blood that cleanses us from all sin, even to eternity. O Lord, help us now. Bless your word and receive sinners to yourself this day. And we ask that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.